Let's take our Bibles and turn to Genesis 47. Believe it or not, we are coming to the conclusion of the book of Genesis. Not this morning, but before the summer is over, I imagine that we'll finish the book of Genesis. Then after that, we'll tackle the book of Leviticus. Joking. <laughs> not yet. <laughs> we will not do that. Let me read the text from Genesis 47. Then Joseph went in and told Pharaoh and said, My father and my brothers and their flocks and their herds and all that they have have come out of the land of Canaan, and behold, they are in the land of Goshen. He took five men from among his brothers and presented them to Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? So they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds, both we and our fathers. They said to Pharaoh, We have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks. For the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. Now therefore, please let your servants live in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is at your disposal. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them live in the land of Goshen. And if you know any capable men among them, then put them in charge of my livestock. Then Joseph brought his father, Jacob, and presented him to Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many years have you lived? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The years of my sojourning are 130. Few and unpleasant have been the years of my life. Nor have they obtained the years that my fathers lived during the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from his presence. So Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt and the best of the land in the land of Ramses as Pharaoh had ordered. Joseph provided his father and his brothers and all his father's household with food according to their little ones. Now, there was no food in all the land because the famine was very severe. So that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished because of the famine. Joseph gathered all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan for the grain which they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. When the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan, and all Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. For why should we die in your presence? For our money is gone. Then Joseph said, Give up your livestock, and I will give you food for your livestock, since your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses and the flocks and the herds and the donkeys. And he fed them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. When that year was ended, they came to him the next year and said to him, we will not hide from my Lord that all our money is spent in the cattle on my Lord's. There is nothing left from my Lord except our bodies and our lands. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food, and we and our land will be slaves to Pharaoh. So give us seed that we may live and not die, 
that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. For every Egyptian sold his field because the famine was severe upon them. Thus the land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he removed them to the cities from one end of Egypt's border to the other. Only the land of the priest he did not buy. For the priest had an allotment from Pharaoh, and they lived off the allotment which Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have today bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you may sow the land. At the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four-fifths shall be your own for seed of the field and for your food, and for those of your households, and as food for your little ones. So they said, You have saved our lives. Let us find favor in the sight of my Lord, and we will be Pharaoh's slaves. Joseph made it a statue concerning the land of Egypt to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth. Only the land of the priest did not become Pharaoh's. Now, Israel lived in a land of Egypt in Goshen, and they acquired property in it and were fruitful and became very numerous. Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the length of Jacob's life was 147 years. When the time for Israel to die drew near, he called his son Joseph and said to him, Please, if I have found favor in your your sight, place now your hand under my thigh and deal with me in kindness and faithfulness. Please do not bury me in Egypt, but when I lie down with my fathers, you shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. He said, I will do as you have said. Verse 31. He said, swear to me, So he swore to him. Then Israel bowed and worshipped at the head of the bed. Lord, again, as we approach your word to hear what you would have to say, we do pray you give us understanding to this text and give us, by the power of your spirit, hearts to seek to apply it, Lord. May you be exalted in the worship of your people. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we started the sermon by talking about family road trips. Family road trips is how we started the sermon last week. But even now, there are some families, I believe, that are on massive road trips, very far and very distant. Even here, when we look at this passage... Over 70 people of Israel were now in Egypt, and they were on a huge road trip. They're in a time of crisis. Even the text says, very severe famine. Verse 13. I can remember on my family road trip, there was a time when I thought I was in crisis. My parents had made a promise to me. God had the promised land. He had made many promises to Abraham that there'd be a great nation and there'd be more descendants than the stars in the sky and they would bless all the nations. Of course, my parents didn't make that promise, but they did make a promise to me in order to get me to go all the way across the whole country. They said, you'll be able to see Yogi the bear. Do you know who Yogi the bear is? 
Any of you? Just a few. Maybe Lisa. Yes, all, all the older people know who Yogi the, the Bear is. I feel sorry for you young people that don't know Yogi the Bear. One of the best cartoon characters ever is Yogi the Bear. So my parents had promised to me that we'll go to Yellowstone National Park to see Old Faithful and Yogi the Bear. So I, I was thrilled. I was so excited and even getting to go to Yosemite. And I thought maybe I'll get to see snow because I, I grew up in Florida. Maybe at these place, places I'll, I'll get to see snow. We'll get to go to the Sequoia. So I was so happy to see all these great national parks, big, tall mountains with evergreen trees on them. It would be a fantastic time. So we started our trip and I was having a, it was, it was a blast. Had a great time until we got to West Texas. Then from West Texas all the way to Northern California, it looked almost exactly like if you're on the 90s and then you go over the Cascades and you go maybe, what is it, 40 minutes and then you keep going. You're, you're going toward uh, Spokane, but kind of after you go over the Cascades, you, you, you go into this place over this ravine. Is it the 90 here in Washington? And it looks like Mordor. It, I mean, it, it's, it's wild. That, that's almost what it looks like. Ups and downs between West Texas all the way to Northern California. I mean, it's pretty desolate. It's pretty bad. It, that's my view. Flagstaff is nice. But as a little boy of 12 years old, and my parents had promised to me, we're going to see Yogi the Bear. Yellowstone, Yosemite. Yes, I can't wait. Snake River Canyon River that Evil Knievel tried to jump over and didn't make it. I was looking forward to seeing all those places. But yet, this one sentence kept being repeated by me over and over again. What was that one sentence? This one question. Are we there yet? <laughs> Are we there yet? And that's the title of this sermon. Are we there yet? God had made a promise to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. There's a very severe famine. And it's almost, in a sense, though they go to Egypt to be rescued, it's kind of, it could be seen to be going backwards. God had said, the land of Canaan is yours. It's going to be flowing with milk and honey. It's awesome. That's your land. I'm going to bless you. And then they end up having to go to Egypt. And actually, they end up being in Egypt for how many years? 400 years. I imagine that some in Israel, some of the Israelites may have asked, you know, are we there yet? What's, what's going on? They are being blessed. But don't forget that this is a time, as the text says, of a very severe famine. The land of Canaan languished. Even Egypt, it says, is languishing in this famine and food is at a scarcity. So this promise that God had made seems distant. It seems far off. And indeed it was. 400 years. That's a long time. A very long time. Even for you and I today, God has made us a promise that is even far better than a geographical land. As great as that was for Israel, the Lord has promised us what kind of land? 
in a sense, every Christian has a land promise. It's a new heaven and a new earth. (laughs) Far better than even what Israel was looking forward to, the promised land was a type of a picture of what God would promise to every believer. A new heaven and a new earth and a glorified state. But the fact of the matter is that we're not there yet. And we live in a time of crisis. We live in a crazy time. My my dear neighbor, the woman whose brother-in-law, as he was eating at Happy Donuts and walking across the parking lot, he slipped on the ice, fell, hit his head, and died. That was maybe five months ago. Well, recently, her sister, that man's wife, left the sink on upstairs for hours and hours and hours, and it overflowed, and now they're going to have to get repair work done in their house because of all the water leak. And so she was over at my house talking to Lisa and I about it. She walks out of her house. She walks down the sidewalk, and all of a sudden, this big, red-headed, pelated woodpecker bird about about this big, about the size of my Bible, drops out of the sky and almost hits her in the head. Bang! Right on the sidewalk. We have no idea what happened. But it, I feel sorry for my neighbor. It just seems like many things in her life are going wrong. She almost got hit in the head by a, a falling woodpecker. That could have killed her. And she's, you know, uh, getting older. And maybe in like 76 or something. Maybe a little bit older than that. And what I'm saying is, not only do we have things dropping out of the sky, hitting on the sidewalk, recently, how many, is it food processing plants have caught fire? Right? I mean, maybe food processing plants catching fire. Oh, I shouldn't say that. Processed foods are not always the best. But then how many cows have died? Remember that? Have you seen that, that picture? Yeah, it's like three, it was at least 3,000 cows died. Dead. What's going on? Crisis. We live, we live in a time of crisis. Crazy things, right? Russia and Ukraine, and now Russia is going into, they've been invited, and I, I love, I love Russia. I've been to Krasnoyarsk, but now Russia is in, They've been invited into Nicaragua to help them solve their problems. What I'm saying is that there's always crisis, and it seems to be a type of escalating crisis. And one perspective that we can have is, you know what? Like Israel here in this chapter, we're not there yet. God has made a promise. God made a promise to Israel. The the promised land is not Goshen. Their promised land was Canaan, but yet they had to wait for it. Their promised land for you and I, praise God for America, praise God for our country, but this is not the promised land. This is not the hope. The hope is with Christ and a new heaven and a new earth, but we're not there yet. And Genesis 50 verse 20 says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. That is, God has a purpose and a plan for us being here now, today. And God had a purpose and a plan for Israel being in Egypt then in order to get them ready for the promised land.
So the question that they needed to ask and that we need to ask is, is this. What do we do then? We live in a country, in a world, in an age that seems chaotic and crisis. What then do we do? What choices do we make? We, we all make choices. Even not making a choice is making a choice. So what are we going to choose to do? And we're just going to look at the text, and I think there are three, at least three choices that we can see that different characters made, especially Joseph, and also then, based upon that, choices that we need to make. First choice is this. Again, we live in a time where there seems to be escalating crisis, heartbreaking times, strange things, personal in our own life, but also with the whole world. How then do we choose to respond? Number one, first choice. Choose to trust the Lord's control over both the good and the bad. Choose to trust the Lord's control over both the good and the bad because he's going to use both to mightily bless you. We see this in in this whole passage is that there's blessings, but also there's burdens in this chapter, both for the countries and for the people of Israel. But yet through it all, who's in control? God's in control, both of the good and the bad. And ultimately, we know in this context, because of Genesis 50, 20, God has a good purpose for it. Though there were evil things going on, God had planned and purposed the evil ultimately to be used for good. And so I think the Lord wants us to understand, as we've been seeing all the way from at least Genesis 37, that God is in charge. Even when bad people do bad things to us, even when people that we love do bad things for us, ultimately it's part of the plan and purpose of God to bless us. Even natural disasters, even things that countries do, that presidents or prime ministers or congress or kings or queens, it all falls under the mighty hand of God's plan. Let me show you this in the text. First, these these burdens, and then there'll be some, some blessings intermixed with this. Now, we've seen this already, but look at verse 4. The famine is severe in the land of Canaan. Now, it's also severe in Egypt, but they do have food in Egypt because God and his wisdom gave the plan to Joseph. And Joseph was able to prepare for it. But the famine is very severe. Verse 9. Look at what Jacob says. The years of my sojourning are 130 and I, I thought after that he might say, wow, that's amazing. Long time. I, I, I lived a long time. I lived 130 years. And he says what? That that is few. Comparatively to those that came before him, few and unpleasant have been the years of my life. Is he complaining? Perhaps, but I, I think also he's being honest. They've been difficult years. And he's sojourning. What does sojourning mean? You'll see at verse 9, twice sojourning. Even earlier to Pharaoh, they talked about that they are sojourning. 
They, they don't have a home. They're camping out. Temporary residents. They don't have their citizenship of Israel, and certainly they're not citizens of Egypt. Life can be difficult. They are pilgrims. Look at verse 11. So Joseph settled his father, his brothers, and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt in the best of the land. So though, though there is a famine, and there's even a famine in Egypt, who gets the best land? Israel, Jacob, and his children. In the midst of this severe crisis and difficult times, they get blessed. Have we ever been in a famine? Sometimes we think there is a famine. If we go to the grocery store and maybe they run out of Pop-Tarts or something, then there's a famine. They had very, very, very little to eat on. They're living in a true destitute state. But in the midst of that, there's a blessing. And sometimes God will do that. There'll be very difficult times, heart-wrenching, soul-crushing times. But then right in the midst of that, God gives relief. God gives blessing. God gives comfort. God gives goodness. Look at verse 13. Now there was no food in all the land. So they would go out to their their fields and there was nothing there. There was no fruit. There were no vegetables. The only food there was was the food that Joseph, by God's revelation, had preserved somewhere in Egypt and protected. That That's the place where there was food. So they were going through very, very difficult times. They couldn't open up their cupboards. They couldn't open up their refrigerator and see, I'm going to snack on a jar of pickles. I'm going to have some a bag of potato chips. They, they didn't have these things. They had very little food. It was a very severe famine. But then look at verse 27. Now Israel lived in a land of Egypt and Goshen, and they acquired property in it and were fruitful and became very numerous. <laughs> so in a time of financial crisis, right, we see that later with Joseph and his working with the Egyptians, they were in financial crisis. They had food crisis. They had land crisis. Apparently, there was crisis of, of life. People were were dying. And, and in the midst of all that, he was being blessed. Israel. They were fruitful and became very numerous. So even they were going through very difficult times themselves, God was still blessing them. Good things were happening, but also bad things were happening at the same time. And we can remember even what Jacob says to Pharaoh, unpleasant have been the years of my life. How could Jacob say that? Well, remember, he had made a deal with Laban. Work seven years, and then you can get married to Rachel. So he worked seven years for Rachel. And then, somehow, Laban switched daughters on him, and he ended up marrying Leah instead. Then he had to work another seven more years. Fourteen years. I thought it was difficult to wait one year to marry Lisa. Fourteen years? That's crazy. And then Jacob, his son, the son that he loved the most, Joseph, 
in Jacob's mind, he thought that Joseph had been attacked and eaten by a wild animal. And that would be, that'd be very hard to bear. And then Jacob's favorite wife, a four, Rachel, died and passed away. And then his sons, Simeon and Levi, I believe it was those two, committed genocide. They wiped out a whole people group. And then Judah, his other son, was very immoral, very crazy guy. And then he finds out, actually, good news, Joseph is not dead. Bad news, all your sons, except for one, tried to kill him. <laughs> and then sold him as a slave. And so Jacob is saying, comparatively, my life's not has been as long as my father's, and it's been very difficult. And yet, we have Genesis 50, verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. So Jacob's life was kind of like you and all, like you and I to a degree, uh, up and down on a roller coaster, right? Blessed and then burdened. Blessed and a burden. We go through trial, we come out, oh, thank you, thank you. That trial's done and we get to the top of the roller coaster and then... Go straight down, and then in another trial. And that's, oh, this is terrible. Lord, help me. Lord, help me. Okay. We come out of that trial. Thank you, Lord. <sighs> Whoa! And then we go back down. And this is what Jacob and Israel and all of us go through. But the, the title over this narrative for Israel and Jacob and for our lives is Genesis 50, 20. That though Satan and sin may have had a, an evil, diabolical purpose in mind for our suffering and our trials. Ultimately, God has what in mind? A good purpose to bless us. Because he is the one that is in complete control over both the good and the bad. This is what Isaiah says in Isaiah 45, verse 7, about Yahweh, about the Lord. I am the Lord and there is no other, Isaiah 45, 7, the one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these. It was God's plan and God's story, ultimately, for all of this to happen in order that the people of Israel would be preserved and stay alive and have tremendous riches and blessings when they went back into the land of Canaan. This is what scripture teaches, that God is not in a boxing ring and he's, by, he's, he's battling Satan and sin and evil and it's the same size as he is. And so God has to duke it out. He has to fight it. And just by trying really hard, God overcomes evil. God is so sovereign, so powerful, so magnificent, so marvelous that sin, evil, Satan, suffering can't even get into the boxing ring with God. They can't. Or we can say it this way, nothing bad happens to you unless God says, okay. Nothing bad happens to you, even somebody sinning against you, unless God has, in his sovereign decree, pinned it. Now, we don't always fully understand that. Our thoughts aren't like God's thoughts. 
They're not as high as God's thoughts. But we can remember Jesus Christ, Acts 2 and Acts 4, what they teach about Jesus Christ. He was betrayed and he was murdered. He was executed. He was slandered against. But in executed like a common criminal. Yet that was what? That was the plan of God. The predetermined plan and purpose and foreknowledge of God. And so what I'm saying that this text says here is that for Israel, for all that happened to Jacob and Joseph and the sons of Jacob, all of that was the plan and purpose of God. Those people that committed evil things, they are still responsible and liable for their evil. But God is sovereign over all of it. The evil and the bad things are not catching God off guard. God has a purpose for it. Every trial that comes into your life, it's not God going, okay, okay, somehow I can make this turn out okay. God, I'm certain, can do that. But ultimately, the one that brought the trial, the the ultimate one that even if it's allowed to happen, that is effective permission, right? Because Satan came to God and said, I would like to tempt Job because I think if I tempt him, then Job will do what? He'll curse you. So do I have permission? Well, Satan couldn't do it unless he got permission from God to take things away from Job, even his family. Satan couldn't do it unless God said, okay. So what I'm saying that this text is saying is that Anything that happens in your life, anything. It's not God being, I didn't see that coming. It's God shaping and molding and contouring our lives without taking away people's responsibility or liability. And so we need to understand this. Not not just have the knowledge in our heads, but understand that God is in complete control of all things and has a plan and a purpose, even if we don't understand it. Now, underneath this, this idea of trusting is also that we relish that God has this, this good goal for us with his perfect sovereignty. I think I had mentioned I had some emergency dental work done when Lisa and I and the kids were in Los Angeles, right? The, 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 the night before we left, I have a bridge back here and it just fell out. It just came out. So as soon as I got to LA, I went to my parents' dentist and apparently I, I had like six wisdom teeth I, and there's some up here and now they're coming in and they pushed out the dental bridge. So he's looking at it going, oh, wow, this is cool. Oh, over here, there's a root that's kind of sticking out over here. Like, what? Yes, over here we had, there's this root sticking out. Are you tough? No, I'm definitely not tough. (laughs) Definitely not. Because I've learned if a doctor or dentist say to you ever, are you tough? You had better say no. (laughs) So I said no. But then he grabbed something, twisted it, yanked it out. Ow! That hurt. But then he put some stuff on it and it felt good. Well, what, what was the pur- purpose of him doing that? It was to, pre- to prevent infection and some other things. So that pain, it hurt. I guess he was trying to distract me and then... <laughs> that was painful, but it was for a what? Good purpose. 
And it's the same thing with God bringing trials into all of our lives. God's not a bad father who's, <laughs> I, I'm going to make Tom suffer because he deserves it. Well, actually, I, I deserve hell is really what I, I deserve. But God's a loving, kind father. And when he brings bad things into our lives, it's to cause us to, to grow and to lean on him and to be purified, to be refined. This is not something that I'm making up. It's right here in Scripture, First Peter chapter 1, verse 6. First Peter chapter 1, verse 6. And there's many places we could go, James 1, 2 through 4. But let me just read to you First Peter 1, verse 6. And this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you do not see him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. And you can write down James 1, 2 through 4. Consider it pure joy. When you face various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith develops perseverance, and perseverance must have its for course, that you're being mature and complete, lacking nothing. God has a purpose when he brings difficult things into our life. Or even if you want to, it's fine to say when God allows. That that allowance is effective allowance. It wouldn't happen, in other words, unless God says, okay, when bad things come into our life, God has a plan and, and a purpose with it. And that's why we can say in Romans eight twenty eight, and God causes all things to work together for good for those that love God and are called according to his purpose. But right before that, it says, verse 18, Romans 8, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Verse 20, for creation was subjected to fertility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And then verse 17, if we suffer with him, so that we also may be glorified with him. The truth is, is, all that we face now, by God's grace, not with perfect joy, but with Christ-centered joy and perseverance and faithfulness, any trials that you're going through, when you go through them with eyes on Christ, battling to keep believing, those ultimately are going to purify you, refine you, and give you greater and greater glory in heaven. That's what Scripture says. That's what Scripture teaches so I think we could say it then this way. God is in control of all the good things that happen to us. God's in control of all the bad things that happen to us. Even if, if I sin and I bring the results, the consequences of those sin upon myself, God had already worked in such a way that that was part of my story without crushing my freedom or taking away my responsibility. Right? In other words, my sin and its consequences 
didn't catch God off guard, so he's scratching his head. I didn't see that coming. Now what am I going to do? God had had it all worked out before the beginning of time without stripping away my responsibility. And it's going to work it all out ultimately for my good. So we can say then, in summary, it's a win-win situation. It's a win-win. Nothing's going to stop God's plan for your life. Nothing. That doesn't, again, amputate human responsibility or even liability out of our lives. But we can make this choice. I'm going to trust God. I'm going to understand it. And then I'm going to delight that God has both the good and the bad planned. I don't fully understand how that all works out. But I know that God is on the throne. Satan does not reign in my life. Sin doesn't reign in my life. The whole world can seemingly spin out of control. And the whole time, the one that's doing all of that in the book of Revelation, who's the one that's in charge out of all the things that happen in the book of Revelation? Is it Satan? No, it's God. In a mini microchasm, all the things that are happening in your life. Is God not on the throne? He's on the throne. And he has a plan. We're not always going to understand it. But we can trust him. Now, after we are trusting the Lord... Then it leads to this second choice. The, the foundation, and we spent more time on this, is to trust God. The, the Bible says, and we just touched it a, a little bit. God is sovereign. He's in control. His sovereignty rules over all things. All, all things, both the good and the bad. I have a heavenly Father, and He's in control. And Jesus is on the throne. I trust the Lord. And then second, because I'm doing that. What will help me then to be able to make the right choice and even as I'm living during a time of crisis to be like Israel, to be fruitful and to have this this fullness, how I can have that, how you can have that is by choosing to be an agent of blessing. An agent of blessing. When I was growing up, secret agents were very popular. Were they also popular for, for you guys when, when you were growing up? They were for me. I always wanted to be a, a secret agent. I have a cousin. Can I say this? I have a cousin that at least used to work for the FBI. And I always, I always thought, man, to, to be a secret agent, that would be awesome. Right? Well, as it turned out, I am an agent. To let you know. Full disclosure. I'm an agent. All this time you didn't know. So Lisa didn't even know. I'm sorry, Lisa. I've kept it from her too. But the reality is, all of us, if you're in Christ, you are a what? An agent. You've been called to be an agent of blessing. Not a secret agent. <laughs> You've been called to be a public agent to bless others. And we see this here in, in the text. So what should you be doing during times of intense, life-crushing, soul-draining crisis? Bless others. When your life at times feels like you're so burdened, you're just all weighed down. What should you do? 
trust God, and then out of that, bless others. I think we see this in this passage, and we certainly see it in the New Testament, and it's remarkable, I think. So consider this evidence that we see in the text. First, Joseph. Now, Joseph seems to be this not perfect, but godly man and a wise man. And we see that he has this initiative. Verse 47, verse 1, Then Joseph went in and told Pharaoh. Uh, Joseph is taking responsibility. So there's a crisis. His brothers mistreated him in a severe way. Joseph takes responsibility to act godly. Even he's using wisdom. I, I think you see this. Because how many, verse 2, he takes five men from among his brothers. He, he doesn't take all 12 men. This is speculation on my part. He probably picked which brothers he, he, he took. I'm going to take the ones that are, are more self-controlled, that are the, the wisest, and the ones that will speak with self-control and present them before Pharaoh. So he has this wisdom that he uses. Even you can see these words that these brothers of his use. What is your occupation? Well, they say right away, your servants are shepherds. The, the Egyptians didn't like shepherds. They, they hated them for some reason. And, and they start out, we are servants. Both we and our fathers, you know, uh, grandfather, great-grandfather, our own father. And, and they say, verse 4, that they're using wisdom. We have come to sojourn in the land. We're not going to be here a, a long time. But we're, we're coming here for temporary residence. So please let your servants live in the land of Goshen. And all of this was instigated and initiated by Joseph. That is, this text we're seeing that Joseph is seeking to be an agent of blessing, helping his brothers. He's already second in command, but he's not just making this absolute decree, here's what's going to happen. He wants to also honor Pharaoh and be wise, and he's managing in a skillful way the situation, seeking to be an agent of blessing, to bless the brothers. But we'll see, even Pharaoh is going to get blessed. You can look here at this text. Verse 10, And Jacob blessed Pharaoh, and went out from his presence. Jacob is blessing. Verse 7, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. This is almost like Melchizedek and, and Abraham. Here comes Jacob. You know, I, I can imagine in my mind, Pharaoh, you know, bald-headed guy, wearing these white robes, maybe bracelets on his arms. Yul Brenner is, is what I have, have in my mind <laughs> for every Egyptian Pharaoh. That's what I see in my head. Maybe this, you know, black beard, all slicked and oiled. And then here comes, here comes Jacob, you know, wearing a shepherd's robe. He's 137 years old. How big is a beard? You know, probably really long. But for the Egyptians, if somebody lived to be 110 years old, they were blessed by a, a spirit. 
They were divinely blessed. If they lived to 110 years old, there was something that was uniquely divine about that person. So here's Jacob. How old are you? I'm 137. That's why Jacob probably asked, how old are you? You know, maybe the beard was really long. How old are you, sir? I'm 137. So for this Pharaoh, he would have been, in Egyptian lore, Pharaoh would have been like, okay, so your son, Joseph, God speaks to him these dreams, and he's able to tell the future. And then you, you're 137. God is truly with you guys. Truly. And so then who blesses who? Pharaoh is blessing Israel and his Jacob and his sons by allowing them to come into Egypt. And yes, he gives them the, the best of the land, the land of Goshen, to, to live in. And at the same time, Jacob then apparently blesses was probably a, a brief prayer of health and, and prosperity, perhaps wisdom for Pharaoh. So already in these, just these ten verses, you have this matrix of blessing, 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 blessing. Everybody really is blessing everybody, and it's during a time of what? Very severe is what it says in verse 13. Not just severe, very severe famine, a very severe crisis. You can see verse 12. Joseph provided his father and his brothers and all his father's household with food according to their little ones. This morning we talked about forgiveness toward the end of John's lesson. Here we see Joseph, he's full of forgiveness. He's forgiving his brothers and treating them with abundant love giving them prosperity, even giving them things not just for the brothers themselves, but all the way, but even for his nieces and nephews, taking care of them. He's blessing them. It's tremendous. And then you have, what's odd, is you have in this section, verses 13, all the way to verse 26, Seems like Joseph is making a buck. Seems like Joseph is, you know, is Joseph gouging the, the people? Why is this section here? This is 13 to 26. You have the Egyptians. They run out of food. They run out of cattle. They run out of land. If they don't have seeds, they're going to die. And they keep giving away things and property that eventually they give away themselves. What's going on? Well, actually, Joseph here is, again, acting in wisdom by the grace of God. And he's being wise and he's seeking to bless them. For example, in verse 24, as the second in command of Egypt, he could have said, at harvest time, you're going to give four-fifths of your food and money to Pharaoh. You're going to give four-fifths. But how much does he require? One-fifth. Actually, he's being kind. And that's why it says in verse 25, so they said, you have saved our lives. He doesn't save their lives and say, because of that, give me four-fifths. Give one-fifth. 
and keep the rest. As he says in verse 24, as food for your little ones. He's blessing them. He could have gouged them severely. And he's not the one that says to them in verse 19, he doesn't say to them, you must become slaves. That's their idea in verse 19. Buy us in our land, and we in our land would be slaves to Pharaoh. And so then Joseph says, okay, we'll do that. And actually, they're grateful for it. And again, that's why it says in verse 25, so you saved our lives. Let us find favor in the sight of my Lord. So we see just all this blessing that's going on, and especially Joseph is seeking to be wise and to bless and to save the people in Egypt. And then even at at the very end of the passage, there's this commitment of faith, this promise that Joseph makes with Jacob, and he agrees that he's going to eventually Israel, the nation of Israel, will take the bones of Jacob and bury them with Abraham and Isaac. And that's also a blessing. So what I'm saying then is that this chapter is saying that you have Pharaoh is a type of blessing, gives Israel Goshen, Joseph throughout this whole section, even with people that are not of his family, and even his family he blesses. Jacob is blessing even Pharaoh. And what's going on in the whole country, really the whole known world, it's a time of great crisis. But yet, Joseph and Jacob, and perhaps even Pharaoh to a degree, choose to bless. So then, the the question is this. During times of woe and weal, W-E-A-L means blessing and prosperity. During times of crisis or great bounty, what do we do? When we're being inflicted with trials and things aren't going right in our life, What do we do? How are we going to act? That is, we can be a a, a channel of resentfulness and bitterness and complaining and be unthankful and we can spread that around to everybody. Or we can be a channel of thankfulness and blessing and Christ-centeredness to others. How are we going to respond? I think first we ask for wisdom, James 1, 5. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, and God will give it to him without finding fault, generously. And then second, be sure you care for your family. We see that happening here in this passage. And then third, and we won't spend much time with these points, but third, what God has taken you through in a trial in the past, and even right now, is so that you'll take what you learned and share it with others. All the hard things that you've gone through in your life and the hard things you're going through now in your life, those are not just for you, but those are for other people as well. Second Corinthians chapter 1. Verse 6. But if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient endurance of the same sufferings which we also suffer. 
Uh, verse 5, just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. You can read Second Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3, all the way down to verse 7, verse 8. And what God, the comfort that God gives in our life when we go through trials, and, and what we learn from those trials, God wants us, based upon Second Corinthians chapter 1, he wants us to share that with other people so we can help them. And as we all know, and if you're a little bit older, by a little bit older, I mean if you're in your later teens, maybe, maybe perhaps even, perhaps if you're in your younger teens, there are things that happened into your life that you've learned that you can share those with others that they can also grow from those things. Uh, For example, for me, having gone through uh, drugs when I was very young and a lot of fighting and I, I did vandalism and other things like that. Then when I've shared the gospel or I've met other young people, I've been able to help them with those horrible life sin issues. Or having neurofibromatosis, now I'm able to help others that are going through some type of painful disease. I can help them with God's comfort, with God's hope. There's so many ways and so many means that we can encourage other people by that which God has encouraged us with. There can be um, like dental work, whatever it might be. God takes us through many things, and it's not just for you, but it's for all of us. And when we look at this section here, we see Joseph and all that he went through He's able to harness all of that and able to have compassion and grace on his brothers that sinned against him, on his brother's little ones. And it's repeated at least twice. He's being compassionate and gracious. And I think it's because of all that he faced and all he went through. So I'm, I, I hope I, I'm being clear uh, for example, another example from my life would be, and I've shared this many times, but just to use it as an example, why why was it uh, before COVID, all of a sudden I started to have this great fear of passing semi-trucks when I was driving my car. I mean, great fear. My heart would... I could not pass a semi-truck. It ended up I had taken too much B12. Okay? And so I was having a flight or fight response is what the doctor ended up saying. And I had to learn gradually to pass semi-trucks again. Now I can pass semi-trucks without being afraid. But in the past, if somebody told me that they were afraid about something, like I had a friend and he was afraid to go outside because the light was too bright. This was in California, by the way. So he didn't go outside very much. But I would think of him and I'd be like, man, you're a coward. Anybody that has any fear problems, you're a coward. Maybe I was kind of like Nebuchadnezzar, you know. I'm so great. And then the next day, Nebuchadnezzar was eating worms and grass. And I thought I would never be afraid of anything. And then I'm afraid to pass this in my... (laughs) 
I'm not now by the grace of God, but then I'm able by God's grace to share some of what I learned through that experience with other people that might have a fear. So am I being clear that God brings hard things, difficult things into our life, I think scripture teaches, so that we learn something, so that we can grow ourselves, but then also for us to share it with somebody else. And then third, and and we'll, we'll end quickly here. Third is, basically, how do we get to this point when we can be an agent of blessing? We can seek to bless others, even during times of crisis, and not be this fountain of grief and, and grumbling. Well, we choose to worship. We choose to worship. Look at verse 30, uh, 31. Then Israel bowed down at worship at the head of the bed. Then Israel bowed, and then in italics, my Bible says, in worship. So in worship is not in the Hebrew. It's not. But then Israel bowed at the head of the bed is. Several versions, and I would follow them, take this to be that Jacob here is worshiping. And so we could say this, that doxology, doxology is not just for Sunday, and it's not just for public worship. It, it should be daily. We should have a daily dose of doxology in all of our lives. And that's where the power comes from. Now, wh- why would I say worship here? In verse 31, where it says the word bow, normally that's used for worship. In context, there's been a type of prayerful blessing of commitment between Jacob and Joseph. Also, it's the end of, coming toward the end of Jacob's life and his realizing that ultimately uh, God's been good and, and God's been faithful. And he's seen Joseph and now he's lived with Joseph for, for many years. And so he's happy and he's overjoyed. Uh, overjoyed. And then also because of Hebrews 11.21, just briefly, Hebrews 11.21, I think, speaks of this event. By faith, Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff, though not with this specific scene, even here in Hebrews, it's remembering that that Jacob was a a man that they used to worship. And we've seen that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were men of, of worship. So several Bibles, like the New American Standard and others, take this to be that that Jacob was worshiping. Even we see in verse 31, the word, the name Jacob is not used, but the term Israel. So it seemed that here, toward the end of his life, that there is this worship that is going on. He's bowing his head in, in thankfulness, not, not to... Joseph, and not because right now he's dying. Soon, though, he will. But there is this type of worship that is going on, that is happening here. And so my question then is, why is this theme repeated? We've seen with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob, that, that there is this worship that keeps happening. Why is this? And just very, again, briefly, I would say this. Power for the Christian life comes out of worship. 
And by that, I mean this great view of God that is in your mind and in your heart daily as you read the word and pray. And that gives you power to go forth for Christ. And I base that upon, for example, Ephesians. And Ephesians, after Paul prays, in Ephesians 3.20, he says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly, being all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. And then after that prayer, and after that brief doxology, then you have all the imperatives. Do this, 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 do this. So you have in Ephesians, here's all that God is for you in Christ. Then Paul prays, and then Paul gives a doxology. He's worshiping the Lord explicitly. And then out of that, he says, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. You have also in Romans, you have Romans chapter 1 all the way to the end of Romans 11. Here's God, here's Christ, here's the Holy Spirit, here's you and Christ. Here's all that God has done for you in Christ and through the Spirit of God. Here's God's sovereign providence, Romans 9 through 11. God is sovereign over all things. And then you have all the depths, but for the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and unfathomable his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord has become his counselor, who has paid to him that may be paid back to him again. For from and through him and to him are all things, to him be the glory forever. Amen. And then after that, what do you have? You have Romans 12 all the way to Romans 16. Do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. And I think it's a type of pattern that Paul is teaching that when we are thinking deeply about God and Christ, and that culminates in our life and, and worship and, and gratitude and, and exaltation, for all that God has and is for us in Christ, then that overflows into, yes, by God's grace, I can be empowered for obedience. What is worship? Just very briefly, sincerely, sweetly, and seriously telling God how worthy he is. An example would be Revelation 4, 8. Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. So it would be the idea of what it would look like is in the morning, afternoon, or evening, driving your car, taking out a walk. You go over a scripture in your mind, and that leads you into prayer and praise, perhaps even intercession. And so you're worshiping God. You're saying great things to God about God. That's worship. And then your your vision, your your picture, your esteem of God gets more and more and more marvelous and, and greater and greater according to Scripture. So we choose to worship. Doxology is not just for Sunday. It's for daily private use. So, then as we end... You've heard it said, are we there yet? We're not. We're not home. We're not there yet. And we're going to have another crisis, and then there'll be another crisis, and then there'll be a a final crisis. And that's when we pass over the river of death and go to meet our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But what choices are we going to make now during the crisis? 
I pray by, by God's grace, as we consider this passage, that we'll make godly choices. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are with us by your grace. Lord, may we trust you doing the good and the bad because you're in charge of both. Lord, we pray as well that we would choose to daily worship you, to, to esteem you greatly, to value you more than anything else in life. And Lord, also, that we would choose to be an agent of blessing and not to be an agent an agent that just gives grumbling to everybody, Lord. Lord, we, we thank you for your grace in our life. May you always be exalted, Lord. And we thank you, Father, for all of your kind love and grace and mercy to us daily. We praise you for that. For Christ's sake, amen.